Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 7, verses 25 through 40. Once again, that's 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. The Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius once wrote, A man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. A man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. It's actually a fairly astute observation. Our ambitions are what motivate us. What causes one man to get out of bed in the morning and get straight to work while another hits the snooze button and rolls over for another 15 minutes of sleep? The answer is ambition, right? The one has something he desires, something which he thinks can make him happy, be that a new house or fame, the approval of men, maybe power, all of which he thinks he can gain through his labor, and so he gets straight to work. The other does not have that kind of hope, that kind of desire, so they do nothing. The one, of course, has some measure of worth, at least in the sense that they produce something. Their ambition drives them to it. The other is rendered useless, inert, due to the smallness of their desires. This is, I think, partly what Marcus Aurelius means when he says that a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. A man's influence in this world will largely be constrained by the extent and the power of his ambitions. The one who desires little does little. However, our ambitions don't just motivate us. They also shape us. And I think this is actually more to Aurelius' point. After all, he doesn't say that a man's worth is no greater than the strength of his ambitions. He says that his worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. You might even say the quality of his ambitions, whether they are good ones or bad ones. Think about it like this. The one whose main ambition in life is to become rich is going to make decisions based on what? It's going to be by whether or not it makes him money, right? He's driven by greed, and this greed makes him very active. But what's the ultimate product of his greed? Maybe it means he'll start up a successful business that sells a product that's actually very useful to many people. But suppose it's easier and more efficient and, most importantly, more profitable to sell a product that's not helpful to people. Well, if profit is the goal, then it means he'll sell the bad product anyways, right? Indeed, that's what you see take place all the time. You can probably all think of a company who you know intentionally misrepresented a product that they knew was harmful just to make a profit. Now, compare that with the man whose main ambition in life is to save lives. Suppose that man becomes a scientist, and in the process, he develops a vaccine that will save thousands, maybe even millions of lives. What do you think that man will do once he realizes that he can then patent that vaccine and sell it for a profit? 
Suppose he realizes that if he were to do this, then it would limit thousands or even millions of people from having access to the vaccine. Do you think he'll still sell it for a profit? Probably not. Instead, if his main ambition is to save lives, then he'll probably give the patent to the vaccine away for free. And you have some examples of this throughout history as well, by the way, of people developing something that they believed was for the general good of humanity and then giving it away for free because they weren't in it for the profit. They were trying to help people. You see the difference? Both types of men may be equally motivated to fulfill their ambitions, but one has a good ambition which produces a good result, and the other is motivated by a bad ambition which produces a bad result. I think this is what Marcus Aurelius was really driving at when he said that a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. If a man is motivated, but he's motivated to achieve something evil, then he's still worthless in the end. If, on the other hand, his goals are good and noble goals, then he's going to produce something that's good and noble. You know, as Christians, I think we can sometimes have the habit of bad-mouthing ambition. We see those who pursue worldly ambitions, those who are driven by a love for this world or for the desire of praise from men, and we think that this must all mean that, that every kind of ambition is automatically bad, that it's always a result of idolatry and pride. We think that ambition is the antithesis of such virtues as contentment and faith. If we really trusted God, we think, then we wouldn't desire anything else than what we already have in our possession. We would be content to remain just exactly as we are. But this isn't really true. I mean, not only does the scripture encourage us to faithfulness with the prospect of reward, but we even learn that God himself is not content with the current state of affairs in this world. Like the Bible tells us that God himself isn't satisfied with the way things are on this planet. In fact, he's so dissatisfied with it that he's eventually going to judge it. He's going to destroy it in his wrath. So let's get rid of this notion of Christianity that tries to act as if Christians, true Christians, mature Christians, are these sort of passionless, emotionless beings. That maturity in Christ is expressed with this dull kind of listless passivity, this stoicism dressed in Christian garb. That's not Christianity. God expects us to want things. He encourages us to want things. The problem with man is not that man is ambitious. It's that we're ambitious for the wrong things. And we seek these ambitions out in the wrong ways. And of course, this is where the Bible comes into play. Again, you see, our ambitions do matter because they do shape who we are. They do determine what we do. And what the Bible does is it helps us understand what are good ambitions, healthy ambitions, and what are bad ones. It tells us this is who you are, this is what God created you to do, and so this is what you should be aiming for. This is what you should want and even strive for. It tells us these are bad ambitions. These are unhealthy ambitions. You need to get rid of those. 
These, on the other hand, these are very good. You should seek these. So what are these good ambitions that the Bible tells us about, and how are they expressed? This is a question that we've been exploring for several weeks now in 1 Corinthians 7. The Corinthians, we've seen, were an incredibly ambitious people. They came out of an ambitious culture, and they brought this ambition with them into the church. The problem is that many of their ambitions were bad. They were driven by pride. They wanted to demonstrate their spiritual superiority to those around them, and this then produced a kind of division in the church. If not outright division, then at least a kind of factionalism. That's what pride does. It creates division. Because in order to prove yourself better than someone else, you have to first distinguish what it is about yourself, what it is that you possess, which other people don't have, that makes you superior. We saw all the way back in chapter 1, this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. And at the basis for this distinction, the criteria that they were using to distinguish themselves, to fulfill their ambition, was their knowledge. Or you might even say their spirituality. They're saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, even I follow Christ. And the reason they're doing this is because they think that by aligning themselves with one or another teacher or school of thought, that they can distinguish themselves as more mature, as spiritually superior than their peers. As we come to chapters 6 and 7, we've seen that one of the ways that these differences of opinion has been expressed was in relation to the body. Again, it would appear that you have these in-house debates going on in the church about which is the more mature or spiritual approach to the body. We seem to encounter two different camps in this chapter, both of which uh, have one thing in common, and that's this agreement over the fact that the body is bad. One camp seems to say because the body's bad, then knowledge, uh, maturity, It's all expressed in self-gratification. The idea is that since Christ has already paid for our sins, then we should know better than to think that God really cares about what we do with our bodies. After all, it's all passing away, they reason. This is not who we become in Christ. In fact, God is getting rid of the body. So who cares about what you do with it, right? Eat what you want. Have sex when you want. And with whomever you want, it doesn't really matter in the end. That's maturity, they think. That's an understanding of right doctrine. The other camp seems to take the opposite approach. They're saying because the body is bad, then knowledge, maturity, is expressed in self-denial. The body is passing away, they agree, but the way we demonstrate this knowledge is by therefore denying its spiritual cravings. The idea is that the way Christians best express their identification with this future, purely spiritual state that's coming is by attempting to live this way right now as if they were already exclusively spiritual beings. That is real spirituality, they say. And what's happening here in chapter 7, it seems, is that the Corinthians are asking Paul to weigh in on this dispute, or at least this latter camp is. We know that there are at least some people in Corinth that appear to be looking down on Paul. It's more likely that the first of these camps, this use it and abuse it camps, uh, is the camp that belongs to that group. 
After all, they don't seem to have written to Paul to ask him to weigh in and give his opinion. And that makes sense because Paul himself seems to have lived a life of celibacy, or at least he's living that way at this stage in his life. The first group sees that as a sign of spiritual weakness, as a sign of spiritual inferiority. The second, though, sees it as a sign of spiritual strength. And so now they're writing to Paul, asking him to weigh in and explain to this other camp why their position is the right one. Come on, Paul, tell this other group why it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Tell them just how smart we are, how much better we are spiritually. The only problem is that Paul doesn't actually agree with either group. Now, he is celibate by choice, and he would agree with this second group that it is better for a person to remain single if they can, but not for the same reasons they're thinking. And so what we're getting here in chapter 7 is this very detailed and nuanced explanation for why celibacy is to be preferred, but not for the reasons that this second self-denial camp thinks. Now, there are a lot of things wrong with the Corinthians' way of thinking. Their theology is wrong, for instance. The body is not passing away, Paul explains. That's the, thing, that's the thing they're agreed about. The body's passing away. That's wrong, Paul explains. It's not, it's gonna, it's not passing away. It's going to be changed, but it's not going away exactly. Actually, what the resurrection means is that the body's been redeemed by Christ and is to be used for his glory. The Corinthians' goals are also wrong. This dispute is obviously all being driven by a wrong set of ambitions. They're trying to glorify themselves instead of Christ. But do you know what's not wrong? What's not wrong is the fact that they do have ambitions. In fact, what's notable is that Paul actually kicks off this entire discussion by saying to this first group, this self-gratification group, he says, all things are lawful for me. But not all things are helpful, literally profitable in the Greek. All things are lawful for me, he continues, but I will not be dominated by anything. This appears to be in response to this first camp's assertions. They're saying all things are lawful for me. And Paul's answer is not to say, actually, no, it's not. He doesn't frame the discussion in terms of what's permissible. Instead, he frames it in terms of what's profitable. He says the reason why you should avoid sexual immorality is because there's no profit in it. There's nothing you can gain by it. So again, it's not wrong to have ambitions. Again, the problem is just that the Corinthians have the wrong kind of ambitions. They have bad ambitions. And it's producing some very worthless kinds of actions. And so as Paul is working his way through this issue, he's not only correcting the Corinthians' theology, but he's reframing the way they should think about spiritual ambition. What the second group has right, for instance, is that they think that maturity is expressed by dedicating their body to Christ. That's what they're trying to do through their celibacy, sort of like what you might see with the modern-day nun or Catholic priest. They're trying to reserve their bodies for Christ alone. 
Now, again, they're pursuing that kind of dedication for the wrong reasons. They're doing it to glorify themselves, not Christ. Still, they're right in that spiritual maturity is expressed in total dedication to Christ, even including the body. As Paul says at the conclusion of chapter 6, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? He says, You're not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So there's a sense in which they're right on this point. A Christian should be ambitious in this sense. They should make it their aim to be the most dedicated to Christ that they can possibly be. That said, what this group doesn't seem to understand is how that kind of dedication is to be expressed. Okay, their theology of the body may not be entirely accurate, but they're right in that they should reserve the body for Christ alone. They just don't know what that means. They think it means keeping one's body free from any kind of sexual entanglement whatsoever. They're telling people, don't have sex at all, not even with your own spouse. We'll see today that they're telling people, if you're engaged, break it off. They're saying you need to remain single. And as Paul has explained, that's not really how dedication works. They think a person needs to attain to some particular marital status in order to be completely pleasing to God. Paul points out the slave can be committed to serve an earthly master, but that condition doesn't in any way inhibit their ability to serve Christ since they can use their servitude to honor Christ. In the same way, the freedman may be free from these types of entanglements, and yet he's still obligated to use his freedom to honor Christ. He says external status. It makes no difference in the end. There's no condition that a person could attain to, be that celibacy or circumcision, that will make a person automatically more pleasing to God, since what matters to God is obedience, and one can be obedient to God in whatever condition they're in. He's interested in action, not asceticism. Remain as you are, Paul concludes. Don't make any changes. It's unnecessary to make any kind of drastic changes if the goal is to be the absolute most dedicated you can be to Christ. If the goal, if the ambition is to secure the believer's physical devotion to Christ, he says, then stay as you are. Marriage isn't, isn't a sin. Not only is, is sex itself not inherently sinful, but within marriage the believer can even use their body to help secure the sexual purity of their spouse. Listen, that's not disobedience. That is dedication. It's using one's body in service to Christ. It's similar to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 4 through 5, when he says that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. The Christian's desire to take what Christ has given them, be that their body or their marriage or their vocation, and to use it in service to Christ is what makes that thing holy before God and acceptable in his sight. So this is what ambition should look like, according to Paul. It's not expressed through some merely external status like celibacy. Instead, it's expressed in this increasing, increasing devotion to Christ internally. Are you following me here? This is really important to what we're about to get into here this morning. The Christian should be striving for something. There is something that they should want. There is an ambition that they should strive for. 
but it's not expressed. Listen here. It's not expressed in who they are on the outside. It's expressed by who they are on the inside. And in the end, that is what they should be striving for, this increasing devotion to Christ, because that's what's pleasing to God. So now, what I want to do with the time we have remaining here this morning is show you from this morning's passage how this kind of ambition is expressed. Again, our ambitions shape us, right? They determine the kinds of decisions that we make. Well, if that's supposed to be our ambition, if we're supposed to want to be as dedicated to Christ as we can possibly be, then how's this ambition expressed? How does this shape the kinds of decisions that we make in our life? That's what we're going to look at as we begin to close out this section of 1 Corinthians here this morning. Now, before we jump in here, just as a heads up, this is a passage that's ostensibly about betrothal, okay? We haven't got to that point just yet, but this second self-denial party is apparently telling those who are engaged, you know, celibacy is to be preferred. God is more pleased with those who are refrained from all sexual relations, so break it off, remain single. And once again, Paul is going to have to explain to this group of Corinthians why he would agree with this encouragement to remain single without agreeing with the reasoning behind it. He's having to tell this group, yeah, uh, if you can, stay single, but not for the reasons these other guys are telling you. So that's what we're going to see in this passage. That's the subject matter of this text. But that said, what I want you to understand is that the implications of this passage extend far, far beyond this specific issue. Yes, again, the specific application in this context has to do with Christians who are engaged to be married. But the principles that shape Paul's decision here are relevant far beyond that specific topic. There's a logic taking place here that's driving Paul to these conclusions. And that's what I want you to focus on here this morning. And just to be clear, that's not to diminish the importance of this text in dealing with the subject of engagement. Rather, it's to magnify its importance in dealing with other types of decisions in situations like this one. And I would hope that's a relief. Because let's face it, a segment of our society that would fall into the, uh, the engaged but considering celibacy demographic is probably a pretty small segment indeed, right? So uh, we're going to get into the broader implications as we deal with this subject. So uh, without further delay, let's get to it. What does the kind of spiritual ambition Paul has been talking about how does this ambition look like applied? Let's read the passage and find out. 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. But I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning... 
and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious, anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I, I say this to your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he's not behaving properly but toward, toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It's, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Once again, in this morning's passage, Paul is taking this idea of dedication, this very good ambition to be completely devoted to Christ, and he's applying it to this subject of betrothal. And what do we learn about this concept from this text? How is spiritual ambition applied? I think we discover uh, at least two specific applications from this text. I think you could even think of this as two uh, ambitions that the spiritually ambitious should strive for, two objectives that they should try to achieve in order to reach this goal of maximizing their devotion to Christ. And we're going to look at just the first of these ambitions this week. And that's this. Number one, the spiritually ambitious seek to be free from anxieties. The spiritually ambitious seek to be free from anxieties. You see this in verses 25 through 35. Paul begins with his judgment on the matter of betrothal, which is more or less a summary of the points he's made earlier in the chapter. He says, verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. At this point, none of this should be too surprising. This is stuff that Paul's already said, right? Sex isn't inherently bad. This self-denial group is going around and saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And Paul's already refuted that point. It's not sex that's wrong, but sexual immorality. Again, God created sex. He even commanded man to be fruitful and multiply, right? He's most definitely not anti-sex. What he is against, though, is sex outside of wedlock. From the very first statement about marriage that we encounter in Genesis 2, that a man should 
Therefore, leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What was indicated was that sex was to be this very intimate expression of the marriage covenant, of this joining together of two lives into one. And so it wasn't meant to be practiced outside of this covenant. But as long as it's expressed within that covenant, it's completely fine. In fact, more than just being fine, it can actually be a very good thing since it can help relieve the tensions that the believer may experience as they wrestle with sexual desires while trying to be pleasing to Christ. Meaning, you know, they know they can't have sex outside of wedlock, but they still find themselves with a strong desire for sex. Paul indicates earlier in the chapter that in this context, marriage can be a very good solution to that kind of dilemma. So the ascetics are wrong. It's not wrong to get married and have sex, nor should you feel any pressure to divorce your spouse in order to avoid sex. Still, if you are single, and if you can, Paul says, then remain as you are. Do not seek a wife. Again, this is also something that Paul has touched on earlier in this chapter. He's alluded to the fact that singleness is in some ways superior to marriage. Verses 7 through 9, he said, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So once again, marriage isn't bad, according to Paul. For the single person who struggles with sexual temptation, it's probably even the right course of action. But if that temptation is not there, then the better thing is to remain single, Paul says. Now, why is this so? What's so good about singleness? Paul's alluded to the answer, but he hasn't come out and said it just yet. It's clear that it has something to do with dedication to Christ, but in one sense, right? After all, if from God's perspective, both the single Christian and the married Christian are both equally dedicated to Christ, if the Christian can serve God in whatever situation they're in, since dedication is a matter of obedience, and obedience is more a matter of perspective than it is any particular status, then in what sense is singleness better than marriage. Or to put it another way, why, according to verse 21, should the slave seek their freedom if they can gain it? Why should they do that if the slave is a freedman in the Lord and the freedman is a slave of Christ? Paul finally gives us the answer here. And it has to do with anxiety. Meaning, and listen here because this is important. It's not because of what our status does for God, but because of what our status does for us. Let me say that one more time. The reason why the single Christian should seek to remain single or that the enslaved Christian should seek their freedom is not because of what that sort of status enables them to do for God, but because of what that status does for them. Chiefly, it frees them from these various types of anxiety. Or to put it another way, it makes their job of seeking this increasing devotion to Christ easier. Look at what Paul says here, starting in verse 26. 
Look at why he comes to these kinds of conclusions. A person should remain as he is. Why? Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person uh, to remain as he is. He says, second half of verse 28, it's okay to marry, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. And of course, this is a refrain that Paul continues to carry throughout the rest of this section. He says, verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. He even concludes, verse 35, and listen closely to this. He says, I say this for whose benefit? He says, for your own benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon you but to promote good order and secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Do you hear this? This is all about the benefit, the single status, the free status brings to the Christian. I don't know about you, but I have to tell you, this was eye-opening for me. I've read this passage, no telling how many times. I've wrestled through the divorce and remarriage issue before, which inevitably brings you to this text frequently. I'm, I've been familiar with this passage. And yet as often as I've worked through this text, I've still come away with the impression that the reason why the single person should remain single, if they can, is because of the benefits that it affords them in serving Christ. Like Paul was able to live as a missionary in part because he didn't necessarily have a family to take care of. As a single man, he could operate bivocationally, working during the day and ministering at night, so to speak, since he didn't have to spend time at home leading his family. Now, as I've, I still wrestled with how all that worked because, you know, I could, I could see some advantages that I had in ministry as a single man, and I compared them to advantages that I had as a married person, and I saw there are some advantages to being married in ministry that the single person doesn't have. Still, I just assumed that this is what Paul was talking about. Until, that is, I started to wrestle with the nooks and crannies of this text, these sections which say, actually, one condition is not better than another. Still, if you can change in this way, then do it. And I've been struggling to, be, uh, to figure out, what does Paul mean by all that? And I was perplexed by all of that until I finally came to this section of the text, where it all becomes apparent, he says, the advantage is for you. One position is not better with respect to another as far as God is concerned. But as far as you are concerned, there is a preference. One status will benefit you more than the other. Again, I think this is fascinating. If I could put it like this, you have these two different groups in Corinth, right? You, you have this one group advocating for self-gratification, and they're saying, you know, just let loose and have fun. Have sex with whoever you want. doesn't really matter in the end. And then you have this second group that's advocating for self-denial. And they're saying righteousness is expressed in denying yourself and denying the cravings of the flesh. And do you know who I think Paul agrees with more? Believe it or not, I think it's the first group. Now, that's not with respect to the outcome of their system of thought, right? Paul is anti-sexual immorality. He's in agreement with the second group in this respect. 
The Christian should not be sexually immoral. He even agrees, if you can be single, do it. However, in the terms of the, the logic that brings him to these conclusions, he's actually more in line with the first group. The second group is saying, deny yourself. The first group is saying, gratify yourself. And what Paul is saying is, yes, gratify yourself, but that's precisely why you shouldn't engage in sexual immorality. It's not ultimately gratifying. It's not ultimately profitable. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Paul isn't looking at these issues in terms of what is permissible and not permissible. That's how most Christians tend to approach these kinds of issues that we're dealing with in this passage. They look at this whole issue of divorce and remarriage and they want to know, what am I allowed to do? What am I not allowed to do? And how is Paul approaching this issue? How are the Corinthians approaching this issue? Even the second camp. Why were they thinking, maybe I should divorce my spouse? Not just can, but they're going, why should I divorce my spouse? It's because they're wanting to know, how can I achieve maximum devotion to Christ? Again, this second group was doing that because they thought that through this devotion, they were earning points with God, that singleness was to be preferred because it was inherently more pleasing to God, which is wrong, but it was still a question of, how can I achieve maximum devotion to Christ. And Paul's whole answer in this passage is to say, that's not necessary as far as God is concerned. He's happy with you either way. But as far as you are concerned, as far as what will achieve your maximum joy in Christ, then yes, yeah, singleness is better. It's certainly not obligatory, but I think it will be of greater benefit to you. He's looking at this entire issue, not with respect to what is allowed and not allowed, but with respect to what is better or worse, what is more profitable or less profitable, and that with respect to the Christian's satisfaction than with respect to God's. And don't get me wrong here. I'm not saying that there's no consideration for God's perspective on all of this. We'll probably get into this point more next week, but there's a reason why Paul says don't divorce and even do get married. And it all has to do with what God finds pleasing and displeasing. And it's apparent that concern comes first, right? That concern comes first. Still, although that concern comes first, there's still this overarching concern for the Christian satisfaction and joy that's running alongside that concern throughout this text. And you need to understand this in order to grasp Paul's point here. The reason why you should choose one kind of status over another is because of what it means for you. Meaning, depending on how you're wired, there are some kinds of positions that are better or worse for you. And the way spiritual ambition works is that you're free to do what you can to secure those positions that are of greater spiritual advantage personally. So how does all this work? What does Paul mean by all of this? What makes one position better than another? You know, I think we hear this term anxiety, for instance, and we might be inclined to think that the general principle is to just do whatever you can to be stress-free. You know, Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. And we think, well, cool, right? Paul says uh, he wants me to live a stress-free life. But then something doesn't seem quite right about that. 
I mean, Paul clearly suffered extensively for the gospel. And that seems like sort of the opposite of living a stress-free lifestyle. So what's he talking about here? I think there are two observations we can make that can help straighten this out. The first is that this is an anxiety that comes from a short-sighted and even worldly kind of focus. Let me say that again. This is an anxiety that comes from a short-sighted and even worldly kind of focus. You see this as early as verse 26. Paul notes that it is in view of the present distress that he takes this point of view. In verse 28, he says that those who marry will have, quote, worldly troubles, and he wishes to spare them that. Paul then gives a full explanation of what he's getting at here in verses 29 through 31 when he says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as those who were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. He says, For the present form of of this world is passing away. And that last statement is incredibly significant to helping us understand what Paul is trying to communicate here. You know, we might wonder, what is this present distress that Paul is talking about? Are they undergoing some kind of persecution there in Corinth that we don't know about? I mean, that doesn't seem consistent with the tone of this letter. If anything, the Corinthians appear to be too much accepted by their society. And the answer is, no, this isn't persecution that Paul seems to be talking about. Instead, he's talking about the birth pains that Jesus said the earth would experience all the way up until the time of his return. The time has grown short in the sense that there's nothing left in God's prophetic plans to fulfill before the return of Christ. The rapture, the tribulation, it could all begin right now at this very instant. And Paul is saying, because this is the case, because Christ can return at any moment, we need to stop living as if this world is the destination and start living in light of the return of Christ. And just so you know, this is something the Corinthians were already trying to do. That's why they were either indulging in sexuality or refraining from it entirely. They were trying to live like they were already spiritual people. They were trying to live as if they didn't have a body. Paul just recalibrates that mindset around a more accurate understanding of the body. And then he says, so remain as you are. Stop acting as if your hope and joy is here and place it instead in this future state that will occur at the resurrection of Christ. This is what he means when he says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Same with mourning, same with rejoicing, same with buying. He's not saying neglect your spouse, right? That's obvious from the context. He's just saying, don't act as if that's the source of your contentment. Or that marital status is anything of great consequence at all, one way or the other. Instead, he's saying, let your hope and joy be found outside of these things. Let it be fixed on what lies in front of you in heaven. It's not unlike what we saw recently in 2 Corinthians, where Paul says in chapter 4, that, quote, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you see this? This is an anxiety that's relieved by not focusing on the things of this world. 
by not valuing these things so much that you're stressed out by them. It's like I said at the beginning of this morning's message, a man's worth is no greater than the worth of his ambitions. Well, what Paul is talking about here is someone who is not stressed out by the things of this world because this isn't where their ambitions lie. They are neither overly shaken by their present situation nor are they overly encouraged by it. Instead, their mindset is very much like what we find in the book of Philippians. When in Philippians 4, Paul gets this gift from Philippi as he's sitting in jail in Rome, about to stand trial before Caesar, where he might die. And he essentially says to the Philippians, you know, I was encouraged by your gift, not because I needed it, though, but because it showed me how much you love me and how faithful you are in Christ. And then he explains, saying, this is Philippians 4, 11 to 13. He says, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, hunger, abundance, and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How can Paul speak that way? Where is this secret coming from that makes him content in every situation? He shows us earlier in the letter when he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, if I live, it means I can serve you. But if I die, it means I get to see Christ. It's all related to his devotion to Christ and his view of eternity. In chapter 3, he says that he's countered everything as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, that he might know him and the power of his resurrection and that by any means possible might attain the resurrection from the dead. This is how Paul can be unaffected by his circumstances, how he can tell the Philippians, be anxious for nothing, even as he sits in jail awaiting trial, perhaps about to die. It's because he's being driven by a different kind of ambition, one that's not rooted in the desires of this world. Again, this is one observation that we can make about this anxiety. It's an anxiety that's driven by a short-sighted and even worldly kind of focus. The second observation we can make is that this is an anxiety that's alleviated by devoting one's attention exclusively to Christ. You see this in verses 32 through 35, where Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, again, do you see this? Paul says you should remain single. Why? He says, because I want you to be free from anxiety. And how is our anxiety going to be alleviated by being single? Well, because it will, quote, secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If you want to understand what Paul means by all that, consider what Jesus says in Matthew 6 about money. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The idea is that a person can only have one supreme authority in their life. If a slave has two owners, for instance, and they give contradicting orders, then the slave can only obey one in the end, and whichever one they obey in that scenario, that's their real master, right? That's what Jesus is saying. And who will they obey? Well, Jesus says it's the one they love the most. They're the one who has the greater authority in their life. 
And I think you know how this works. If the president or some other authority commanded you tomorrow to spit on the Bible and deny Christ, what would you do? You disobey, right? And why would you do that? Well, because you love Jesus more. You love him more than the president. You love him more than our country. You even fear Jesus more. You know he has a greater authority than any earthly power. But friends, how would you feel if the president commanded you to do that? You'd be pretty anxious, wouldn't you? And not just because of the power that the president wields here on earth, but also because you understand that you've been commanded by God to honor and obey your king. And so you're not going to just be anxious about the consequences of your disobedience, but if you're thinking rightly, then you're going to be anxious about how to disobey. And in some situations, even whether or not you should disobey. I mean, that's what we've seen during this whole COVID-19 pandemic, haven't we? The government issues shutdown orders that include the church. They tell us, stop meeting. How do we respond? You see it all over social media. We're wringing our hands. Because on the one hand, God tells us to obey the government. And on the other, he tells us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves. So which are we supposed to do? Which command has the priority in this situation? You see this? This is an anxiety that's stemming from one's love for Christ, from this ambition to be completely devoted to him, and it's arising out of the complications that so often arise when you bind yourself to someone else, such as in a marriage covenant. So what's Paul talking about here when he says, I want you to be free from anxiety? Is he saying... I want you to make it your ambition to remove any kind of stressful situation that you find yourself in in your life? No, he's saying, number one, I want you to think in such a way that you're not overly stressed out by your condition on this earth in the first place. And then number two, I want to free you from the anxiety that comes from having two masters. I'm trying to secure your undivided devotion to Christ. Let me stress this point, because honestly, I think Paul is thinking about anxiety and what makes us anxious from such an entirely different perspective that it's very easy to misinterpret what he says here and turn it into something that it's not. So let me put it like, for, uh, let me put it like this for you. You will stress out over the things that you think make you happy. If it's money then you'll stress out when the bank account is running low. And perhaps even when it's not, right? You'll still worry about the future. If it's other people's opinions, then you'll spend your time worrying about what other people think about you. If it's your health, then you'll worry about that headache you had last Tuesday and whether or not it's a sign of something more ominous. Again, a man's worth is only as great as the worth of his ambitions. You'll strive for, you'll be anxious for the things that you think matter. Well, do you know what matters to the Christian? It's obedience to Christ. They're so thankful for what Christ has done that they want to honor him with their lives. Again, I think people forget this. The unbeliever, I tell you, they definitely don't understand this. Obedience is not a must for us. It's a get-to. We like to do it. We want to do it. 
1 John 5, 2 through 3, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Obedience matters to the Christian. And you know what else matters to the Christian? It's devotion to Christ. The Christian believes that Jesus is so great that they want to be able to fix all their attention on him. Again, they don't have to worship Jesus. That's not like a, it's like, you know, you must eat ice cream, right? It's like, okay, twist my arm, right? They get to do it. They like to do it. So do you know what the Christian stresses out about? It's their obedience and devotion to Christ. They see even the unintentional sins they commit and they're bothered by it. Because they want to honor him. They see how little they love him, how cold their heart is, and they want to know how to grow warm in their affections for Christ. Do you understand? They have a different set of ambitions. And so this creates a different set of anxieties. So do you know what Paul says you should do if that's your ambition? He says, do what you can to free yourself from those kind of anxieties. Again, single, married, it makes no difference to God, which you are, because you can be obedient in either condition. It's just that the married Christian's path to obedience is made a bit more difficult by the obligations they've made to their spouse. Obligations which they now must fulfill in order to be obedient to God. That is, it's more difficult, that is, unless they struggle with sexual desire. Then guess which path is easier. You seeing how this works? Paul says, in that situation, it's probably better to marry. Trade the stress of sexual temptation for the stress of the covenant commitment. Again, are you, are you seeing how this all comes together? There are some conditions that are better or worse than others for the Christian. Now, they're not better in the sense that they're more pleasing to God than others. Rather, they're better or worse in the sense that they make it either easier or harder for the Christian to fulfill their ambitions that they have in Christ, to know him, to be pleasing to him. And what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do here is to take the path of least resistance. Don't make devotion to Christ any harder than it has to be. Choose the path that will make it the absolute easiest it can be to maximize your obedience to and devotion to Jesus Christ. He says, yeah, you can get married. I'm not going to tell you you can't. It's not sin. But why would you bother with the headache if you can avoid it? Again, do you see this? Now, at this point, there might be some questions that are popping up, such as, isn't this kind of selfish? That's what pops up for me. Paul's saying we should just do whatever maximizes our enjoyment in Christ. He's saying we should try to release ourselves from these obligations to others. Isn't that a pretty self-centered way of looking at things? And just so you know, we'll get there next week. Again, a man's worth is only as great as the worth of his ambitions. And what I want to try to show you next week is how this particular ambition actually produces a very good and God-glorifying result. In the meantime, I would encourage you to ask yourself two questions. 
the first question is simply, am I anxious to please Christ? Is that my ambition? And I bring that one up because I think what Paul, talking, what Paul is talking about here is unusual. The church has become so infiltrated with worldly thinking that we actually can't connect, I think, with what Paul is saying here. Because a lot of times we really don't care all that much about pleasing Christ. That's not what makes us anxious. We're more concerned about the things of this world. We're more anxious about what we will eat and what we will drink and what we will wear, right? Instead of seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So this is a really good place to do a heart check and consider what are the kind of, kinds of things you love. And if in the process you discover that you're more anxious about the things of this world, then I'd encourage you to take to heart what Paul says back in verses 29 through 31. If you believe in the gospel, then you need to remember that you believe that the present order of this world, the present form of this world is already passing away. And if that's the case, then you should be approaching this life as if you weren't married, as if you didn't have anything in this world, either to rejoice in or be heartbroken over, as if you had no possession on this earth, either to buy or sell. And I hope you understand, that should be a very liberating thought. This world really is not all there is. Eternity is far, far greater. And so you don't need to stress so much about the things that make you happy here. You have a better inheritance awaiting you in heaven, and it's going to be here soon. So start by asking yourself this question, and then if you do think this way already, then ask yourself, what is the path of least resistance in my devotion to Christ? Based on what Paul is saying here, that's obviously going to be different for different people. If someone has the gift of singleness, well, then you might say that they have the easiest path forward with respect to this particular subject, sexual temptation. The one who doesn't may have a slightly harder track, since they're going to have to accept the challenges that come with marriage in order to avoid the challenges that come with singleness. What's important for you is to find what is the most optimal path for you. What best secures your undivided devotion to Christ? For example, if you want to know why I chose to be a pastor, this is actually one of the reasons why. It's not because I think being a pastor is inherently more pleasing to God than not being a pastor. It's because, honestly, I thought I'd kind of be miserable if I weren't a pastor, spiritually speaking. Not saying that I couldn't be spiritually content without being a pastor. The scripture says I could. It would just be harder for me. Yes, there are some freedoms that I surrendered in becoming a pastor, but personally, the stress that comes with those obligations are probably less than the, than the stress that I'd experience without them. I'd encourage you to consider, what does that look like for you? What is the easiest path that you can possibly pursue to secure your undivided devotion to Christ? And then based on that answer, consider what steps you might be able to take to pursue that path. Make it your ambition to free yourself of anxieties. We'll continue by looking at the second ambition, the second objective that the spiritually 
ambitious pursue in order to maximize their devotion to Christ next week. In the meantime, let's close by asking God to help us discern how we can be the most free we can be in Christ. Let's pray.